MOD's highest-ranking civil servant gets a tough grilling from MPs over the costs of new aircraft carriers and their jets. Decisions have not been taken. And I can't tell you when it will be announced because it's ministers who take these decisions. The long wait for Arctic convoy medals and new inquiry brings hope to veterans of the Second World War's deadliest naval campaign. And all you need to know about the 21-gun salute. The spiralling costs of Britain's new aircraft carriers have been called into question by a group of MPs. The Ministry of Defence's highest-ranking civil servant faced the Public Accounts Committee earlier today to explain why the department hadn't given an official answer to the committee's damning report on the saga. The government is deciding whether to stick with its order for cat and trap fighters for the ships or switch to jump jets, which would avoid the extra spending. The MOD's permanent undersecretary, Ursula Brennan, told the committee that no decision has yet been made. The Secretary of State for Defence wanted to take the time to assure himself about He's these issues. He's not made a decision. He has been uh, asking us a lot of detailed questions and he then has some discussions that. that he needs to have with his ministerial colleagues, including the National Security Council, and that process has not concluded. Ursula Brennan awkwardly also said that no time frame could be given on when the decision would be made. I, I'm genuinely, I'm genuinely assuring <coughs> you that, they, that that process has not been complete and decisions have not been taken. You can't tell us when it will be announced. And I can't tell you when it will be announced because it's ministers who take these decisions and as soon as they've taken decisions they will announce them to Parliament and, and as soon as that's happened we can respond to the Public Accounts Committee. And here's the committee chairman, Margaret Hodge, sounding particularly unimpressed. It calls into question the ways in which decisions are being taken and whether or not the, cha culture, the change culture which we hoped we were seeing within the MOD is in practice a reality or is just a myth and a lot of words. I've got to say that to you. Well, I'm joined by James Blitz, diplomatic and defence editor for the Financial Times, and as usual by our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Um, Christopher, Ursula Brennan sounding rather uncomfortable there. It's about time she answered on the carriers, isn't it? I think that um, there's a, it's reasonable to think that the Secretary of State, one, has not taken a decision, that they've got no idea, her department, and after all, she is the boss of the MOD, doesn't know the circumstances yet and when you consider it they're going to have to do deals on the aircraft they're going to have to look more carefully with the lawyers on cancellation prospects of certain parts of the agreement and that hasn't been done and there's another side of this um, they knew she was going to the PAC today but the MOD has got a blackout on at the moment on saying anything that might be at all controversial doesn't matter whether it's Secretary of State or whatever, before the election, the elections of next week. Now, this, is, this happens every time there is an election, that they don't put out any new statements, they don't put out or, or controversial statements, etc. I think this is the we most... We were told here by Easter, though, or around that time, weren't we? I would guess, yes, but we thought even then that because of, because of the indecision 
about the um, uh, about the types of aircraft, for example, what it means with France, what it means with the prospects uh, of sales, for example, of other aircraft, or even one of the carriers to India. That's the sideways way uh, of looking uh, of, of looking at this. Um, that the decision would probably not come out until July. I mean, I don't mean to be cynical, but just before the house gets up for its summer holes. Uh, James Blitz, do, do you think it's understandable that it's taking this long and that Ursula Brennan could give so few answers today? I do th- have some sympathy for Ursula Brennan in this. I think, as Christopher says, it's extraordinary how long it is taking. And uh, there is a big question here. I mean, the original cost of installing these cats and traps on the carrier was thought to be, I think, around 200 to 400 million pounds. And there's a worry that the installation will be much bigger. It will be something like 2 billion. There are some figures around suggesting that. Now, in the old days, before Liam Fox, before this government came in, the MOD would just have gone ahead, built this thing, and then just watched the costs spiral, and then had a crisis three or four years down the line. What's happening now, I think, is that a lot more due diligence is being done about saying, look, what are the real costs of this? Are we absolutely sure we've got the cash in the bank for this kind of thing? Are we sure the costs are not going to go over what's expected? I'm and sure, that's not a bad thing. I'm sure that uh, uh, Margaret Hodge had said after the SDSR, have you worked out the cost of these cats and traps? And she was reassured that all of these things had already been thought through. Yes, there is some truth in that. And of course, the decision was originally we were going to have the um, vertical takeoff and landing version up until 2010. That was the idea. Then that was changed to... Um, Uh, F-35C using the cats and traps and you're right there probably should have been some much harder thinking about that the fact is though that as everybody knows defense technologies um, are constantly evolving and changing and and yes there should have possibly been more anticipation but now that the issue is there for a relatively new Secretary of State my point is it's not a bad thing that they're doing due diligence on this. That's all I would say. Christopher Lee. I was listening to Andrew Alexander, the, um, uh, the Treasury uh, Secretary the other day, who was saying things are going to get worse. You've got to find more savings. Then we jump forward to 2014, 2015, when the next big round of savings is going to come through, perhaps the next big defence review. And I think what... Uh, they're trying to sort out at the moment exactly how much is all this going to cost and they're not believing some of the big money the big numbers that are coming up if 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 the treasury sector is saying arguably one of the most powerful men in Whitehall is saying to the defense sector one of the least powerful men in Whitehall there's five percent maybe you've got to con- you've got to contain yourself another five percent somewhere this is the big budget item that could actually sort of uh, they'd have to change the way they do it well one of the things that's come out of this this uh, grilling this morning is the fact that Ursula Brennan didn't even know how much it was costing delaying making this decision James. Yes, that is right. I mean, one of the issues we don't know is if they were to go back to F-35B, short takeoff and landing version, sort of more equivalent to the Harrier, if you like, uh, then how much have they actually spent going down the cats and traps road, if you like? There will be lost cash and lost investment there. And that, I think, is what the, the Treasury, what the PAC was trying to get out of there. And that could be one of the embarrassments. I'm not convinced. A lot of newspapers are suggesting that they are going to reverse the decision and go back to short takeoff and landing. I'm still not convinced that's the case. I still think they may yet stick with F-35C. I, I don't think we need to jump the gun here. There is a genuine debate going on inside the MOD on the subject, and I still don't think it's over.
Um, uh, James, let me fly this one at you. Um, somebody was pointing out that if you if you uh, have a, a conventional takeoff and landing aircraft carrier, uh, you can, when you want to, sell it to India because, after all, they're going to have conventional takeoff and landing aircraft. Unfortunately, probably French, but that's not ruled out as far as the uh, the MOD is concerned. In other words, go and talk to the admirals, eh? Because they're changing the rules all the time. James, um, just really briefly, give me a date. What would you put your money on for the decision? Uh, you know, Kate, I really don't know. <laughs> I thought, like a lot of people, it was going to be a few weeks ago. I think they've got to have it done by the summer. I don't think they can go on like this. Otherwise, they begin to delay, seriously delay the time when these these, these aircraft are actually going to be delivered. We'll All end right. up with carriers without aircraft. All right, gentlemen, stay with us. Uh, we've already heard how much money Britain will contribute to supporting the Afghan security forces, some £70 million a year once combat troops leave. But the exact nature of NATO's contribution, both financially and practically, has still to be found. Finalized. Ahead of the crucial summit in Chicago next month, chiefs of defence are now meeting in Brussels to prepare the way. Uh, Christopher, what exactly needs to be ironed out in Brussels? Uh, they need to iron out uh, what happens when the great withdrawal uh, finally takes place. Um, and it's beginning now. I mean, the Americans have got something like 100,000 troops, and they're going to have a, a third of them are going to be gone in September. Um, there's also, I mean, the United Kingdom has got a, a sort of a depleted battalion. That will also come out. We knew about that uh, in, in September. The important thing is the state of the Afghan uh, army, the National Army, and the police force. Now, what's quite interesting, uh, the chairman of the military committee, which is the highest military unit within the in brussels because brussels is not as you know secure it's not the military side um uh, uh, knut bartels the general said uh, we're cautiously optimistic mm, and he fantastic interesting his phrase cautiously optimistic doesn't sound like uh, uh, old uh, hammond does it the defense secretary it doesn't sound like our chief of defense staff uh, general richards doesn't sound like um, the Americans, I oh, know we're going to be able to do it. We have to say politically throughout the West and all the people that make a contribution to the uh, to ISAF, for example, yep, our, uh, the, the Afghans will be able to do it because we have got to get out. And we, But this guy, heading the military committee, is being cautious about the whole Although thing. Although he, he was uh, praising the Afghan forces, wasn't he? In line with what our Defence Secretary has just said this morning when he was announcing the details of the drawdown of 500 British co combat troops, there does seem to be this unified approach that everyone is praising the progress made by Afghan forces. Yeah, they, they have made progress, and nobody's accepting that. Um, but he also makes a point, I mean, Bartels made a point, you know, look, we've got uh, uh, this month so far, in April, 130 people have been killed in these operations, and the majority have been in Afghan forces. He is not satisfied, and there are a lot of realistic guys who are not satisfied that the whole thing can go on come 2014, 2015. Now, nobody knows if that's true or not. But the suspicions it might not be. So this meeting that's going on in Brussels and the Afghan side of it has really finished now. Um, this meeting is all about the meeting in Chicago on the 21st of May, because that is the future contribution, uh, everything from money to military to withdrawals to political support to commercial support. Don't forget, Afghanistan is proving to be one of the most powerfully uh, attractive uh, places to go to get out natural resources. Now, how are you going to do that if you haven't got a security system that actually can protect the whole mining and exploitation? Uh, James, James Blitz, um, 
how much will the politicians in Chicago really have listened to what the military leaders have to say about the drawdown in Afghanistan when it comes down to it? Well, they'll have listened to them to a certain extent, but I think as we've seen in the U.S., the speed of the U.S. drawdown being introduced by President Obama is much faster than his own military chiefs had recommended, as you know, last year. So they are moving a bit faster. I think in the U.K., I actually think the the uh, CDS and the, the 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 chiefs are being listened to pretty carefully, and we're we're going at a fairly slow pace, as you know. Philip Hammond today announced how the 500 who are coming out this year will will be coming out, but we're we're not going quite as fast as as, as some people had suggested. So we're being listened to um, in, in 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 that way. Are there any sticking points that are going to come out between the different NATO allies in Chicago? Do you think, James? The big sticking point, the big decision that has to be taken, is actually one about the post-2014 And what question. are the differences of opinion there? Well, what's happening there is that basically once we are out in 2014, you've got the um, Afghan National Army at about 352,000 troops holding the situation but they have to be paid they have to be funded and Afghanistan as a country doesn't have the cash to do that so the allies are going to have to come up with something like four billion dollars a year so is it, is it to all keep paying them it all going to be about money is it Christopher in Chicago I, I don't think it's all about money it's resources as well I mean, you know James is right you you have this 300 thousand odd uh, security forces uh, where is the uh, if you like the middle management of that security forces what we say in the army would call the company commander level where is the the system for bringing that in because these are the people that are going to be running those security forces these are the people who are going to be absolutely necessary so it's not just money it's the resources that you're willing to continue to to, to stay on for or supply or train uh, re-equip whatever. And J- James, when when you talk about the, these Afghan forces, when you what do you think the expectation is of the NATO allies? How good do you expect NATO thinks they should be, and what do they do you think they think is acceptable? Well, it's difficult to say. I certainly think in terms of numbers, trained up numbers, NATO feels it's reaching its targets, and um, it's frequently says, as for example, in the in the awful Haqqani network attack that happened in it's Kabul about two weeks ago, they were. Um, uh, I think Afghan national forces were able to put that down. It took them quite a while, so they're not bad. The trouble is, we're going to see such an onslaught from the Taliban in the next two years and beyond, and. That's where people are really uncertain. I think that they are going to be severely tested. There's no question about it. All right, James Blitz from the Financial Times. Thank you very much for your time today. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, one of the deadliest naval campaigns in World War II could finally be honoured. And 21, 42 or 62, we're talking gun salutes. Who gets the most and why? This is BFBS. Sit rep. While the politicians and defence chiefs discuss Afghanistan's future, the daily work of British troops on the ground in Helmand province continues. The last troops from 20 Armour Brigade will shortly be leaving Afghanistan to return home to Paderborn in Germany. But before they end their tour, soldiers from B Company 1st Battalion, the Princess of Wales's Royal Regiment, have been talking about their experiences to BFBS reporter Rob Olver. For six months, Checkpoint Parachute, a dusty, mud-walled compound, has been home to five platoon. It's quiet now, but medic Lance Corporal Wiggs Wiggly recalls how different it was at first. The weather was hot, the corn was high. We went out and we found out that it was still quite kinetic. We were involved in quite a few firefights early on. To seasoned Helmand veteran Corporal Sean Jones, there were echoes of past battles like Musakala. 
sort of first started pushing over towards Kakaran and they pretty much almost as soon as we got in there um, start engaging us. Come out here as well, like when it kicked off I was a bit done I like. For Private Rob Lush, this was his first experience of Afghanistan. I was expecting it to be worse to be honest than what it actually was. We wouldn't let them think that they'd beat us. We'd stay there till they decided that they were leaving and then we'd push back into Kakaran and show the locals that we're not scared of them. The worst moment came in November. An IED blast left some soldiers wounded and one dead. We all fought the worst, like to be honest, because it was quite a loud bang, we heard it and we felt it from here. When we lose guys, whoever they are, we always remember them all the time, every day. Something that they used to do will remind us of that. A lot of us went to R&R and saw like, uh, Jonesy in hospital, we saw him, and like, he's good spirits and that, but it's going to be harder for them people and like, that's going to be the hardest bit living with them, knowing they've had like, injuries. It hit the company pretty hard as a whole, uh, but we knew that we're not going home. Obviously it's horrible, horrible feeling for everyone, for losing a friend. However, we still had to do another five months of a tour, put in everyone's frame of mind what we needed to do. We made us do it with a, with a bit more pride and a bit more, uh, a bit more fierce. They withdrew all the time, so you know, the incident made us strong as a company. Corporal Sean Jones says that as the insurgents fled, the tragedy marked a turning point. It's a strange one going from fighting them one day from smashing them up to two months later after big incidents. They're coming out, chatting to you, drinking chai with you, you know, happy to see you. These people all hid away when we were getting shot at and why are they coming out now? But as soon as you walk through now and they're all about saying hello, they want to get to know you, it's uh, a lot better. The soldiers agree that half a year with 27 other people in a confined Hellman checkpoint has been life-changing. Here is no escape from, from people, you know, and it does get on your nerves, but in a whole, you know, we've all grown and we get on well and we're all better friends here for, for it. When the rain hit and the roofs were leaking a bit, it was a bit hard. We had, like, the whole platoon on the, on the roof trying to sandbag it up, making sure, like, no one was, like, drowning in the sleep. I could be in a bad mood, someone else could be in a bad mood, but there's always someone that will be in a funny mood and will make you laugh, no matter how bad things are. The cooking, the cooking has been the main thing that's been the best. We have guys that have probably never cooked ever in their life before here. Some of the meals you can, you, we've been getting uh, honestly terrible. In the CP it's a lot stress-free, easy, easy-going life, as long as like, you keep a little bit of admin done, which is not a lot to be honest in a place like this. It's just, that's what I've, I think I miss the most, is how simple life is here. When we leave, we're left, we're going to go home. These guys that live in these compounds, how it is their country, and maybe they could, well, definitely they could do more for themselves. However, we're here and we're here to do a job. Um, it makes them, the, the little kids safer. It makes uh, the women safer and some of the men safer. And that, that's a good feeling. Hopefully the guys on the next tour have it a bit quieter, and it, and it should do, because we worked hard on this tour. This six months has 100% improved and we can be proud of what we've done. Soldiers from the 1st Battalion, the Princess of Wales's Royal Regiment, talking to Rob Olver. Uh, Christopher, a bit of an insight there into the life of, uh, of the front line. It is, and also the attitude. You know, the guys have been there six months. They're proud of what they've done. There has been a change. Um, throughout the whole deployments from, say, uh, well, really the beginning uh, of the, uh, in Southern Helmand of, uh, what was it, April 2006, there's been a sense sometimes that one lot goes in and they don't build on what has been created by the previous uh, deployment. 
And I think that is the sort of that's probably one of the major lessons that has been learned um, probably during the past two or three years, and that's one of the reasons one of the reasons that uh, there's been so much uh, change for the good. Well, international judges have found former Liberian leader Charles Taylor guilty of aiding and abetting war crimes during the Sierra Leone Civil War at his trial in The Hague. Taylor has been on trial at the Supreme Court in Sierra Leone for almost five years. He was accused of backing rebels who killed tens of thousands during Sierra Leone's 1991 to 2002 Civil War. Um, Christopher, your reaction to this news? Well, I mean, we expected Charles Taylor uh, to be found guilty. Um, it was very difficult why, why, that the International Court wouldn't. And although the trial actually took place in The Hague, but it was on, on behalf... Yeah, I meant Special of, Court for Sierra Leone. Yes, I made yes. a mistake there. Uh, no, Apologies no, no, on no, that. No, no, no. It took place in The Hague, and this is very important, because we expected him to be found guilty. What do you do with him when you find him guilty? You have to put him in the slammer, presumably. Now, as it's going on in The Hague, which slammer? And the Dutch feared that they would actually have to host him for the full length of his, 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 his present term. He couldn't go back to Liberia, certainly he couldn't go into, in, into Sierra Leone, although the Sierra Leoneans to some extent would have liked that. Great fear that he would have been assassinated or murdered or whatever you like to call it in, in another jail. So the British turned around and said, we'll have him, we'll look after him. The veterans of the Arctic convoys are pinning their hopes on a new inquiry into whether they should finally receive a medal. During the Second World War, they shipped vital supplies to Russia to help the Red Army defeat the Nazis. But pounded by German artillery and facing temperatures of minus 20 degrees Celsius, thousands died. Although it was the deadliest maritime campaign of the war, the veterans have never received a medal for their services. The new independent inquiry is headed by Sir John Holmes, a former ambassador to Moscow. Well, BFBS reporter Victoria Smith, Smith has been following their story, and you've done a documentary on it, Victoria, as well. Can you put this campaign into context for us? Yes, very much so, Kate. Uh, Winston Churchill ordered these convoys in a response to Russia, who was, uh, as a country, was in desperate straits because the Red Army was under attack from the Nazis and desperate for supplies, everything from food to fuel to ammunition to aircraft. Uh, so they called for British help. Uh, they received it because they were our allies. And also, of course, uh, Churchill probably had little choice in the matter because if Russia had fallen to the Nazis then the outcome of the war could have been very very different. So he sent some 66,000 men from the Merchant and Royal Navies between 1941 and 1945. He sent them across the frozen Arctic uh, past several German Air Force bases so of course they were strafed by the Luftwaffe in the skies. They were targeted on the surface by many German warships and pounded from underneath as well by the uh, by the U-boats. Uh, so they had a very tough time. They had the, the toughest maritime campaign of the Second World War. They lost 100 vessels and a staggering 3,000 men who took part were also killed. But the convoys are considered today to be a success. They delivered some 25% of all Russia's needs at that time, including the things I've mentioned above, fuel, food, ammunition and the like. And they did crucially keep the Nazis at bay and eventually helped the Allies win the war. Now today there are fewer than, than 200 veterans of this campaign left. They do seem to be dying off on almost a weekly basis very sadly but there are a few left to uh, who tell us their stories. And one of them is 92 year old Scottish veteran Eddie Grenfell. Now, he sailed four convoys on HMS Edinburgh and survived his ship being bombed five times. All I can remember was flying through the air and then I hit the sea 
and I went deep down into ICC. My lungs were bursting. I was down there for quite some time, and uh, I didn't uh, pray to my maker. I argued with him. I said, look, I'm 22 years of age. I'm too young to die. It's incredible the way they talk about it, so matter-of-factly, isn't it? Um, But they did receive an Arctic emblem under the last government. Isn't that enough? Well, some say it is, uh, particularly the politicians that issued it. But uh, the veterans themselves say, no, it's not. It can only be worn as a pin on their lapel. They can't wear it as a medal or alongside their medals, although many of them do. Uh, And in fact, they liken it to something you'd find in a child's Christmas cracker or a toy at the bottom of a cereal packet. And it's fair to say that the emblem has not had a great take-up since it was announced. Now, interestingly, every political leader really since the campaign began back in the 80s has shown willing but then they seem to get uh, thwarted somehow by the MOD's rules and regulations which have been in place for so many years. And, and earlier on, in fact, uh, it was late last year actually, David Cameron also seems to have made the veterans a promise, which has in fact yet to be honoured. So there is a case for saying that they have missed out. Many of them are coming uh, to the end of their lives and it would be good if we could do something more to recognise what they've done. Well, the veterans are still waiting, of course. He did order this new review. Uh, First, we had a review by the MOD, which was scrapped after 16 months because nothing was happening. The veterans felt they were running out of time. The subject then came up at Westminster in December, where the veterans turned up in their white caps to meet the veterans minister, Andrew Robethon, who caused an absolute uproar at the time by more or less dismissing their case out of hand. Authoritarian regimes and dictators often do indeed throw around a lot of medals, and one can look, for instance, at North Korean generals who are covered in medal ribbons, or indeed Gaddafi or uh, Saddam Hussein. We have taken the view in this country, traditionally, and and honourable members may disagree with it, that medals will only be awarded for campaigns that show risk and rigour. Interesting choice of words there, Victoria. How did the government handle it? Indeed, risk and rigour, if anything illustrates the Arctic campaign better than those two words. I don't know what it is, but they, uh, the government was forced to issue an apology. In fact, uh, Defence Secretary Philip Hammond apologised uh, uh, in the Commons to the veterans and uh, and that was how they handled it and now they've ordered this uh, new inquiry. So, new inquiry, as you say. Uh, Christopher, what do you think is likely to happen on this? Well, um, more badly put, you couldn't have got, could you, from uh, the Minister at Raybotham there. Um, the truth is... Uh, it's, it is a tradition uh, since the beginning of medals that you have not so much for risk and rigour campaigns, but for major campaigns. This was part of the naval campaign. Do you have a, to have a, a North Atlantic or Battle of the Atlantic medal? Do you have to have another one for the uh, Malta, Malta convoys, which after all Malta had a, a George Cross uh, or, or perhaps the Crete campaign? And that is the distinction that's being made. The other thing in the MOD... They keep their eye on the pennies. It costs an absolute fortune to mint a load of medals. They wouldn't have to put too many out, but they would be rather exclusive. My late uncle um, uh, commanded a, a destroyer on that convoy, and he always used to say, ah, it's just cold. Okay, thank you, thank you, Victoria, for that. And um, and you can listen again to Victoria's documentary, The Arctic Convoys, The Worst Journey in the World, on our website. That's bfbs.com.
The Royal Gibraltar Regiment marked the Queen's birthday on Saturday by firing a 62-gun salute from the Tower of London. But why 62 and not 21? Yeoman Sergeant at the Tower, Phil Wilson, can explain. It's a 62-gun salute because there's 21 for Her Majesty, 21 for the Royal Palace and Fortress, and 20 for the City of London. Why the 20? Uh, as far as I know, it was to do with the accounting system within the City of London that they could only account for 20 as opposed to 21, and that's how it's been. Is that right, Christopher? Yeah, it's the Royal Park. If, it's, if, fire, if you fire in the Royal Park, you, 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 you fire 20 guns. And if you fire in, um, let's say, uh, the Tower of London, it's 21 guns, because that's a palace, you see, and that is the distinction. Uh, what they fired uh, was for the Queen's proper birthday, not a, her official birthday. Now, if you do the arithmetic, it's absolutely marvellous. If they did it uh, uh, on... If it was her official birthday and you fired guns in the Tower of London, because it's a palace, and it also coincided with Prince Philip's birthday, as it can, because that's June the 10th, you see, mm -hmm. and it's the nearest Saturday when they fire these guns. If you did that, you'd actually be popping off, I think it's 144 rounds... Uh, which is a sort of a bit of a record. Um, but if you're, for example, if, uh, uh, other people sort of turn up, and if you're sort of, you know, I don't know, uh, a field marshal, you just get 19 guns. But the 21 gun salute is a royal salute. Yeah, and wh why 21 in the first instance well, anyway? If you go back to the 18th century, uh, the Navy piles into Cadiz on a, on a friendly visit this time. And one of the things you had to do when you went in somewhere, you had to fire off your seven main guns to show that you weren't going to bombard the place at night. So you cleared your guns, in other words, right? And there were, seven, uh, there were three rounds in each of the seven guns. And remember, it's very difficult to load, so you couldn't sort of fool them very much. But to sh so that's 21 guns, that they would, they would, or rather seven guns they would fire. But they said, say to the Spanish, but we don't trust you, because <laughs> you've got more guns. So you've got to fire off three more, three times the many we do. So instead of seven... They fired off 21, and that, they thought, was the best salute of all, and that stuck as the royal salute. Certainly would be a day to keep your dogs indoors, wouldn't it, let's face it? Well, yes, but, I mean, not our dogs, because they're all gun dogs. <laughs> Christopher, good to speak to you. Well, that's um, all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests and, of course, to Christopher. Let us know your thoughts on today's programme. You can follow us on Twitter. Tweet us at BFBSSITREP, or send us an email. The address is sitrep at bfbs.com. We're back at the same time next week. Thanks for listening, and we'll speak to you again. Bye-bye for now.